0: You are listening to a special bonus episode of Church Historia. This is Leslie, and you may have noticed that we occasionally refer to me as the in podcast I did a Rod expert, and that is actually my official title after producer and editor. And today we will finally explain what that means as we take a Church Historia colored filter to an experience I had one year ago. We're soon going to be approaching year anniversaries since the pandemic began. Some of us are gonna celebrate birthdays alone for a second time. We'll remember when we were supposed to be a part of an event a year ago or recall canceled trips. For myself and much of Nashville, the eerie and odd pandemic season we are living in began with a tornado. It killed three people in my town of Mount Juliet and left us all to pick up the pieces like a completely destructive toddler who hasn't learned to clean up its mess, but like a giant Godzilla-sized toddler who was teething and needed a nap. The morning of the tornado, my husband and I were to embark on a grand adventure to Anchorage, Alaska to see the 48th Iditarod dog sled race. Instead of leaving that morning, my husband stayed home for a couple days to clean up and board up windows that had been broken, but he said I needed to go. So, I went. It was on that trip to Alaska to see the Iditarod that I learned about church in a way I hadn't yet experienced. I wasn't going for a church trip, I wasn't going for religious reasons, I wasn't going to hang out with people I knew to be Christians, but while I was there, I was shown the power of what a church can do to the brokenhearted and homesick. On Church Historia, we like to draw parallels between church history and culture. It's an important way to think critically about how the church can affect the world it serves. So today, I invite you to do that with me as I share what it meant to be a part of a non-religious gathering of people that modeled how the church can affect those around it. I've been known to be a little passionate about an activity called dog sled racing. I talk about dog sled racing like everyone else talks about sports played on TV. The only difference is, I seem to be the only person who knows anything about it in the humid, sweltering Bible Belt. I think this is sad, but I guess I'm the one living in the middle of SEC territory with very little knowledge of the thing they call football. But yes, it is true. Somehow, this Northern Illinoisan-turned-Southerner is a fan of an activity only done in parts of the world with multiple feet of snow. Dog sled racing can't be found in the Olympics, but there is an Olympic-level event for the activity, kind of, and it's a 1,000-mile race called the Iditarod. It's certainly not the only long-distance dog sled race, and it's not even the only type of dog sled racing there is. Just like there are marathons for people, there are also sprints, right? So I could go on. I won't. I'm always asked how I got into this sport, and I don't know that I have a great answer other than because it's awesome, but I do have a supposition, and it has to do with elementary school gym class. PE never failed to make me sad. I couldn't run well, and I definitely didn't have any coordination. I was always letting my team down, as if it wasn't already a disappointment to them that I was the last to choose from when the captains were picking teams. Well, in fourth grade, our gym class did a mock Iditarod run around our campus. For this activity, I was chosen as the person to sit in the red wagon, the musher, to be pulled around the trail by my teammates, with the fastest kid in school as my lead dog. I had to choose how long we rested, I had the responsibility of getting my tasks done so we could move on, and I was the one to make sure my dogs were well taken care of. We won that race. And for the first time in my life, I didn't let a team down. I had purpose. I had a place. I had strengths. To explain how an elementary school activity led to me being in Alaska in 2020 in the wake of the March 3rd tornado, I need to introduce you to one of my favorite mushers of all time, Lance Mackey. Lance Mackey is the most iconic of all Iditarod legends, of which there are many. Lance doesn't have access to fancy microphones or super reliable internet in Alaska. And even when he was in the lower 48 for this vacation, phone audio was the best we could do. To catch you up to speed, Lance Mackey grew up immersed in this sport. His dad helped establish the Iditarod in 1973. As Lance recalls it, he had a natural ability for working with the dogs. But taking care of the family kennel growing up ended up being a source of resentment for him. So when he was 17, Lance left home to become a fisherman on the Bering Sea. It, it took me a little
1: while to realize that there was uh, more life than, than dogs and setbacks and all the responsibilities that I'd inherited, so to speak, until I was 17. And then all of a sudden, uh, things ended uh, somewhat abruptly, and I decided that dogs were not what I wanted to be involved in, and I, uh, I left home uh, fairly young, you know, prior to eighteen, and, and uh, set off across the state of Alaska to find new uh, adventure, I guess, and do all the things that no parent would brag about their kids doing. I really disappointed and let my folks down in many ways, and. You know, I held a grudge against my father, and I uh, blamed him for all the things that, all of a sudden, at 17, I realized that I had either missed out on or what have you.
0: But after he won a very difficult battle with addiction, he wanted to find a way to repair the broken relationship with his parents.
1: I wanted to do something that they, that I knew they would think was sincere. One day, driving around the neighborhood, I saw an old dog stand. This is in the summer months. I saw an old dog stand sitting in the, in the lawn of this uh, house, and it had flowers growing out. And it just came to me. I said, "This is what I need to do, not only for me, but my parents. They'll know this is, this is what I
0: need. Lance soon ran the Iditarod for the first time with his parents waiting for him at the finish line.
1: You know, I made it to the starting line that March. Um, on a shoestring budget, and I made it to the finish line that year. And I'll never forget, you know, seeing both my dad and my mom there. I had never saw either of my parents cry tears of joy for something I had done.
0: Not long after that, doctors discovered a softball-sized tumor in his throat, and he was diagnosed with stage 4 throat cancer. Unsurprisingly he beat that too, though it's the hardest thing he's ever done.
1: And from that moment until today, I still believe that that was the hardest summer of my life. And there's no dog race long enough (laughs) that would be able to challenge me mentally or physically the way that summer in the hospital was. Anybody that's ever went through cancer has run the toughest race of their life and anything after that seems easy. Now, I'm not saying that Iditarod and the Yukon Quest are easy. And I wouldn't wish cancer upon anybody.
0: See, Lance won both the Iditarod and the Yukon Quest, another thousand-mile race, in the same year. And he did it twice. He's also the only person to win the Iditarod four years in a row. This is widely known as the most extraordinary Iditarod feat of all time. And it's not expected to happen again. Health concerns from the effects of radiation. Have made the last few years of competition difficult for Lance, but this struggle almost makes him want to do it even more.
1: The one thing that I haven't accepted at this particular time is that year that I did not make it to Nome, I really disappointed my dogs and I let them down. And I have not accepted that. And I owe it to them to be the person on the back of the sled at the finish line with it.
0: Lance did run the Iditarod in 2019 and he took his time at each checkpoint to thank the volunteers and soak in all the smells and sounds and people of the trail without having to race onto the next checkpoint. He ate, he slept, he sat around the checkpoint tables with rookies telling trail stories. He called it the snooze and booze cruise. When I watched him cross the finish line that year, Via a live stream from my couch in Nashville. The dogs howling and barking from the energy of knowing they had just completed a huge feat. I resolved to finally be at the Iditarod in 2020. There are Iditarod bus tours you can go on, but they're expensive and honestly really sterile. I wanted a backstage, all-access pass, roadie experience. I wanted to be cold, exhausted, and smelling of dogs. So, just like I did to get Lance on the show in the first place, I started making more big asks. I found emails for people who were well-connected in the sport to see if maybe there was some work I could do that week. I was able to build a website for another musher, and I ended up working with Lance's girlfriend, Jenny, to find ways to make my trip happen. And I ended up buying plane tickets for my husband and me for the early hours of March 3rd. We went to sleep on March 2nd, and were awoken at 12.30 the next morning by a tornado warning. March 3rd, 2020 will be forever remembered by Middle Tennesseans as the day an EF4 tornado traversed nearly 60 miles on the ground and left utter devastation in its path. When the tornado first ripped through our neighborhood at 1 in the morning, I immediately and rightly prepared myself to give up this trip I'd been wanting to take since fourth grade. But then, as I swept up glass in our kitchen at two in the morning, my sweet husband said, I can't go on this trip, but you're going, and you're going this morning. Our driveway was covered by a 60-year-old poplar tree that was uprooted in the storm, one of about 30 trees we ended up losing. So with the help of a neighbor, I was whisked to the airport. It felt very much like an escape, and in several ways it was. In the weeks leading up to the trip, I started to sense that I needed to disappear and be completely shaken from normalcy, which for me meant to be cold, makeupless, tired, and smelling of dogs. But for eight days, Alaska would be my disappearing act, my great escape. But instead, I was seen and acknowledged by strangers. These people became our surrogate community. In the midst of their own crisis and high-stake events, they became the family we needed. From the moment I set foot on Alaskan soil, I was welcomed. And when folks discovered where I was from, I was met with an immediate, Are you okay? Is your family okay? Everyone knew about what happened. Everyone had seen pictures. Everyone wanted to help. I could almost see their hearts reaching out and grabbing for mine. The whole community in Nashville came together so that my husband could join me in Alaska two days later. We broke bread with Lance Mackey and his family. We listened as he told stories from the trail. We held his children and cared for them while their parents were tending to race events. We hung out with big, amazing, loud, high-energy dogs. And we led them to the starting line of the 1,049-mile race. We stayed up late. We stared at mountains. We were dang cold. We got tattoos. One of the events leading up to the race is a fundraiser night for Lance at the best steakhouse in town. It's another Alaska legend called Club Paris. When you walk in, you feel like you've just arrived at the Cheers Bar. And interestingly, Club Paris is also owned by a sober bartender. That night, Lance made his rounds greeting everyone, giving time and energy, These were two things that weren't in ample supply that night, especially after he had just driven 12 hours in less than a day to get his Iditarod team from Fairbanks. With each person he met, he was lauded and encouraged, and his genuine responses reminded me of why he's such an icon in this state. You
1: are awesome. You really are. Thank you. I'm just a guy. Yeah, but you're an awesome guy. You've a lot. Yeah, but, thank for you no, yeah, God, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but I'm staying. the it, it, well,
0: you The night ended with James Taylor's fire and rain playing over the bar speakers as Lance's children ran around the tables giggling and we all hummed along. I looked around and I just couldn't believe how fortunate I was. Lance's 2020 race had very specific meaning for him. He had said that he wasn't intending to run it at all, but he was awarded the Most Inspiring Musher Award after his Snooze and Booze Cruise 2019 run, which comes with a free entry for the following year's event. Then his mother passed away. Kathy Smith never ran the Iditarod herself, but she used her piloting skills as a part of the Iditarod Air Force, transferring people and dogs and supplies up and down the trail. As we ate lunch one day, Lance said that his mom was going with him to Nome, and he would scatter her ashes along the trail. He didn't know where at the time, but he was certain it would become clear. On March 19th, 2020, Lance and Kathy crossed the finish line into Nome. A couple days later, Lance went to the small plane's airport and had a beer to say goodbye to his mom. His partner, Jenny, wrote on Instagram, and wouldn't you know, the plane flew over to land right in that moment. No coincidences in life, none at all. There's a songwriter named Jim Varsos who lives in Fairview, Tennessee. He goes by Hobo Jim, and he's actually another Alaskan legend. He lived in the state for a time, and his songs tell of living in cabins and fishing and dog sled racing. He plays just about every venue during the week of the Iditarod start. Audiences sing along with Hobo, and every so often there's a big old howl that gets thrown up to the sky. His songs are the kind we sing when we want to escape, we need a break from everything when we want to be well wild and free. Got
1: my Must have been the times that made me to wander away. From a family that a love and a warm room. Everybody around me can say it's just me being wild and free.
0: Yes, even though I went to Alaska to escape, to blend in, to hide. I discovered that there's a little bit of home everywhere. I heard the whisper of home as I watched Hobo Jim, a Nashville songwriter, playing to adoring fans. I heard the echoes of home as Johnny Cash played at the local bar. I felt the embrace of home when strangers wrapped me in Southern-style hugs after learning what we had gone through. So, from a church historia perspective, isn't this what being the church is all about? Welcoming those who are displaced, who are hurt, who are alone, who maybe feel a longing for home. A friend of mine, Andrew Peterson, writes about the feeling of homesickness in his book Adorning the Dark. And he says of it, At church, even when I receive the Eucharist and sing songs of the Good King with my friends and family, I feel that same persistent longing, dogging my every step. My heart, God help me, is restless and has ever been so. And then Andrew says later in the chapter, Let your homesickness keep you always from spiritual slumber. As Christians, there may always be a longing for something we know we were made to experience but haven't yet, or have seen glimpses of but have yet to see its fullness. I think these glimpses are what the Church exists to show to glorify its Creator. I think by following the example Jesus set and using our own understandings of home and our longing for it, we can do a better job to comfort and to keep others. Church Historia is Stephanie Fulbright, the in-podcast historian, and me, less than either Thompson, producer and editor. And now you understand why I did her odd expert. Be well.